Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for Andrew and the worship team. We pray that you just strengthen Hayward as he teaches through the book of 1 John to those young people. May there be a great harvest of souls that, that you collect this week as they hear the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and a very black and white book of those who know you and those who don't. And so give Hayward strength. Thank you for so many gifted people that can step in and help us, Lord. We thank you for our children down the hall. Many are down there being taught great things of you, Lord. May they be encouraged. Now, Lord, as we gather and we look into the Old Testament, may we see clearly the New Testament and what you and how your son fulfilled all these great sacrifices. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. And entitled the sermon, Pleasing Offerings of Thanksgiving in Faith. We're in the middle of our study in the Pentateuch. If you're visiting today, I've been working on Wednesday nights through the Pentateuch. That's Penta is the Hebrew word for five. So the first five books, Penta, the Pentateuch. So we've made it through Genesis, Exodus, and we're in Leviticus. And going strong in chapter two. I'm excited. Um, learned a lot today and as I finished up this message. Uh, but I want to start in Ephesians chapter five. Because here we find... Uh, just a great statement that really sums up what we're going to learn in, in Leviticus chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we find this great statement. Paul is challenging the church in Ephesus, and now us 2,000 years later by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says this, Therefore, be imitators, plural there, so he's speaking to the church, of God as beloved children. So this is a a command. It's written in a, in a command form. This isn't a suggestion. We're to be imitators of God. We're, we're His beloved. We've been had His love pressed upon us. He has made a way for us to be His children. And then verse 2 says this, and here's where we want to pick this up. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for you. And notice this phrase, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now notice that he is bringing us into this offering, he says. He tells us to walk in love. So first of all, the command brings us into the picture that, that we who have, been, who have been those who receive the love of God, whom he calls beloved children, so that means those who have received that, we are to continue on daily, is the idea here, daily walking in that same love that God has loved us. Then he says, let me give you the example of how this takes place. Look to Christ, just as Christ also loved you. Now, these are strong words here. <laughs> um, Christ did not whimsically love us. He didn't love us, and then when we blew it, he just left us. <laughs> He's faithful, right? He's the faithful husband. He's the faithful high priest. He's faithful in everything he does. So he becomes the standard of of love, doesn't he? So anytime we want to look to, to know how to love, whether a husband or a wife um, or, or anybody in the fellowship of God's children, we look to God to learn how to love. We look to Christ. Just as Christ loved you and he gave him up, gave himself up. So there you get that sacrificial giving, right? That sacrificial love that Christ has Notice for us. We are to mimic that. But here's what he says about the offering of Christ. And really, our offering, because we're, we're included in this as we walk in the love, that it is an offering, that it is a sacrifice to God that has a fragrant aroma. 
It's a very similar word brought over from the Hebrew to the Greek of fragrant aroma, soothing aroma. We're going to see that over and over in the book of Leviticus. So God says, look, imitate me as my children like a son imitates a father, right? I remember Gina has pictures on the ranch, me walking out through the ranch and four boys step stared right down behind their dad walking across the ranch, you know, following dad. They picked up some really good traits. They also picked up a few I'm not proud of, right? (laughs) We imitate our father. Here, now we're to imitate this perfect one. And when we do, we resemble Christ, right? And that brings God this tremendous offering, a, a sacrifice of our lives to him that we would live in such pleasing manner. Now, certainly this is fulfilled by Christ, but I want to encourage you, as we look into Leviticus, and it's, it's going way back, they're still, they're still at Mount Sinai, they have not moved very far yet, the promised land is still a ways off because of disobedience, but all of that is pointing to the fulfillment in Christ and also the fulfillment in our own lives. So one of the things we want to answer today as we look through this Is our lives a soothing or or a fragrant aroma to God? Is it something that goes up to him in a consistent manner, let's be honest here, in a consistent manner where God is glorified by our lives? This is the mark of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 2. My goal was to get through more than this, but the more I studied, the more I realized there's more in this chapter 2 than I thought. I thought it was just grain offerings, but there's so much more in this, and I think you'll be encouraged as we look through historically what this offering is like, and then apply it to our lives through the New Testament. Now, I gave you, I think, four or five points in your notes there. Number one, the grain offering. I just want to look at the grain offering. Look at verse one through three. We have a, we have a good uh, explanation of what it is here in these first three verses. Leviticus chapter two. Now, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord... His offering shall be a a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And he shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take it from his hands, uh, excuse me, and from it his handful in its fine flour and its oil and all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offering to the Lord by fire. Now, the grain offering, as we begin to study this, you see this word memorial in these first three words. What that helps us understand is that this is an offering of thanksgiving. We still offer this when we remember the the Lord's table, don't we? Do this in remembrance of me. Um, It is a spirit inspired memorial to our Lord Jesus Christ, to our living Lord Jesus Christ of what he did for us. They were to offer this this grain offering as a thanksgiving to God. And it was typically done with this finely ground flour that was mixed with just a bit of oil to, to help it hold together. And you notice that there was frankincense in this. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever ground grain, but grinding grain is not hard to do. But it is hard to get it fine. Um, on the ranch, if you want to feed hogs grain, if you just feed them whole grain, they'll, they'll go right through them. They can't process it. But if you grind it, they'll, they'll go, it'll go right to weight. You'll take a little 
pound little wiener and in four months you'll have a 200 pound pig. I mean, if you put them on good grain like that. So we grind a lot of grain when we were raising hogs because that's where they really grow. And, and I remember teaching the boys how to pour the grain in, how to fine tune our grinder so that we could get it to a coarse or a, a fineness where those pigs could really take it in and really grow. Well, here the Bible says, look, I want fine grain, ground, grain ground here. And, and notice, as, as this grain comes to them, this fine grain, now it's almost at a flower type. And I, I remember the boys would start getting in fights with it because it would get almost to a powdery fight. And pretty soon they're all covered like white, you know, because they're out there, boys, they're supposed to be feeding pigs, not fighting with the grain. Uh, you know how that goes with boys. Um, and, and so when he comes, here, here this person comes, this, this one who is trusting that God is going to forgive his sins and receive this, this gift of thanksgiving. He comes to the priest, and you'll notice there, the priest was to take this large handful of this finely ground flour and mix it with oil so it would kind of stick together, and there was a burnt offering to the Lord on the brazen altar. Now, you'll notice that the rest of the flour there was to be given to the priest, and it was to be used for bread and other sacrifices, and particularly to sustain the families there. Now, the grain offering displayed to God that they were both thankful, now listen to this, they were thankful for their daily bread. It's an interesting offering. Remember, chapter 1, it is this sin offering. There's this unblemished lamb. There's this, this animal set apart, male, unblemished, and it's for sin offering. But this is not what that is. This is an offering of thanksgiving. And so they were to come to him with this grain um, as, as a thanksgiving to God for their daily bread is the idea. God, all that we have is from you. And so we are grateful to you. We are giving you a portion of our grain ground up in fine flour to honor you. And so this was a sacrifice thing, really saying to God, thank you for what you give to us. It's a portion of our work we've done. Now, ever since the fall, we remember in the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that God told man that he was going to work by the sweat of his brow. In fact, you remember the exact words. He's going to make bread by the sweat of his brow. And, it, and, of course, everything became much difficult after the fall, as we know. But they were to go out with great effort, and they were to daily provide grain, provide bread for their family here. So grain was this great necessity. And it was, it was the first and foremost thing they would eat, right? You, bread sometimes was all they had at times um, in some of the difficult trails that they went on. And so bread was this great necessity. It was a, it was a daily benefit to man that, that he was to appropriately honor God. This is how I, what I gain God by working in the soil, by, by growing something. And, and from that, I live daily, but I want to give you a portion back. I want to thank you, God, for what you've raised out of the ground. And, and when I thought about this, the study in this, I thought, well, even the poorest in the nation of Israel could offer this. They were often allowed to gleam out of the corners of the fields. Um, they were told, the, those who had a little more were told to leave some for those who were less fortunate. So anybody could take a handful of grain, a few handfuls of grain, grind them, and come and offer to God a thanksgiving. Now, the grain was to be sifted into a fine flour, and that, that means all the fibers would be purged out of it. Um, grain that is harvested now by uh, big combines knocks most of that out. And if, you, if you've ever seen a combine and see it unload, you just stick your hand in there. It's just rich grain. But that grain is hard by the time it's harvested. 
And so they grind it and it goes into this powder. And so notice that in these first three verses that God says that this powder needs to be fine powder. And what he means by that is it needs to be purged of all the fiber. And so there's a great connection there, right? Nothing that comes to God in any of the sacrifices should have blemishes. Because remember, it's all looking forward to something greater than the grain, greater than the lamb, greater than the fruit, greater than all that. It's pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a great connection just to the impeccability of Christ. Bring me fine, finely ground flour, purged of all fibers. Put a little oil in that and offer it to me as thanksgiving. You know, all through the Bible, we're taught to give a portion of what God has given us back to him. And it's worship. And again, this is not a sin offering. This is not a, a lamb taking the place and bleeding out as we saw in Leviticus 1. This is this saying, Lord, this is the least I can do for you. And you gave me the ground. You gave me the ability to farm this, to grow this, and I give this back to you. Now, isn't it interesting that there's frankincense involved? Did you ever see this before? I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't really recall that the frankincense would be mixed in this. And this is a fairly expensive uh, product, right? It came from the Middle East. It wasn't probably readily available. Most likely they obtained some of this when they left Egypt and they had this with them. And it, it, it was used to enhance the aroma of a, of a burnt offering. And so most of the offerings that we see, we'll see this, this just small amounts, very small amounts of frankincense, which had a great aroma, was put into this offering of thanksgiving. Well, where else do we see? Where else do we see frankincense show up in the New Testament? At the birth of Christ. Isn't that interesting? There we begin to understand that God sends these magi, right? They come from the east. They're bearing tremendous blessing, right? They're, they're bringing with them um, gifts to this, this child, which we know is the incarnation of Christ. And, and here God gives them... Uh, this great gift, which would have sustained them for a long time financially as a young couple. But here in this offering of thanksgiving, um, here they were to put these drops of, of frankincense in that. And no doubt, no doubt when we think about the incarnation of Christ, that God had planned to offer his son as an offering, something that was sweet in Rome. What else would have been the sweetest aroma to forgive sins than Jesus Christ. And so I thought that was fascinating. Probably more could be said about that. But notice that all of the, not, not all the grain uh, sacrifices uh, were to God, were reserved just uh, for the nation itself. There was always something reserved for the daily living of the priesthood. And I think that's important as you look at this. Notice in verse 3, the sacrifice, excuse me, um, the remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. As I thought about this, I thought, well, Lord, your death on the cross was the greatest sacrifice, right? The bread of life died for us. He, he gave us the eternal salvation we needed. But he's also good for the priesthood of the brethren, right? And that's what we are now. We are the priesthood of the brethren. And, and Jesus Christ not only died for us on the cross, but think about this. He daily sustains us, doesn't he? And, and so here's this priesthood, of course, they were set aside to do the ministry of the, t of the tabernacle. Um, they were set aside for the work of God. Um, they, they, did, they were allowed fields to farm themselves. But their God was providing through the sacrifice for the priesthood. And we are Christians. We are called the, the priesthood of believers. 
And Jesus Christ is enough for us in the daily stuff as well. But notice in verse 2. I'm going to go back to there. Notice towards the end of verse 2. It says that this fine flour and its oil and all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar. So here we begin to understand that this offering of thanksgiving was to be a sweet or a soothing aroma to the Lord. And and God is not asking for a blood sacrifice here. This is not a blood sacrifice. This is an expression of gratitude. I like that term memorial. The, The Hebrew word gives us idea of great thankfulness as you remember what God has done. I don't know how many times the Bible says in the Old Testament that he tells the nation of Israel to do something because he brought them out of slavery. He says it over and over and over. And it's a reminder of what God has done. And so there's this graciousness to thank him for the daily provision and to remember what God has done for them. So there's a strong memorial here. And in a society that was... Um, raised in an all agriculture. Everybody's hand was in agriculture. Everybody had something to grow, something to do. That was how you survived at this time. So to living in nomadic type of world, it was fitting to give God thanksgiving for the daily provision. Number two, an offering free of sin. An offering free of sin. I'm not going to read all these verses. There's actually four through 11 here that I want to go through. But I want to kind of hit a few highlights in this, as I try to work my way through the next, um, the next few weeks over the next five or six chapters, I'll just hit some highlights. And here I want to highlight a few things. Here in, in verses 4 through 10, he begins to now reflect about the offering that it could also be brought in a form of bread. Now, I got thinking about this uh, deeply and thinking, well, first the offering comes in fine flour, Right? Um, so bring us ground flour, let the priest take a big handful of that, mix it with oil, give it to the Lord. But here, still under the, the guides of, of a grain offering, he says it can be done in the form of bread made with that same fine flour. And you'll notice as you read down through here that it can be in these unleavened cakes. It can be made, verse 5, on a griddle. Um, verse 7, it could be made in a pan with oil in it. Now, what, what's interesting about that is this is something that can be done in the home. Now, as I studied this, I thought, well, Lord, um, often in this, in this world, the, the, the head of the home often took care of the sacrifice. Uh, certainly the family took the lamb and they kept it with them through that time. And then when the time came to offer it, they slayed that lamb and they, they of course, brought that to the priest and slayed that lamb and so forth. And most of the time, the head of the home took care of that. But isn't it interesting that now he turns that this can be baked. It can be made into unleavened cakes on a griddle or, or um, uh, unleavened bread uh, made in a pan over fire with oil. And what it tells me here, and I, and I believe what he's allowing, is this ancient Jewish women to be using their gifts in the sacrifice. And I thought that was, you know, you know, I know in our home, when we were on the ranch, the boys and I did most of the ranch work, mom did most of the cooking, <laughs> And she really honored the Lord so much the way she carried for us in the home, the way we always have people in our home, and it's a great ministry. And I thought, Lord, how neat this is, that he allowed these ancient Jewish women to prepare this. Can you imagine this? Those who cook bread maybe know a little bit about this. But, but there, all the preparation to make that bread out of the first 
harvest of the grain, they took that first harvest, they ground that, that grain, and they made bread. And think about this, those ladies were making that bread knowing it was going right to the Lord. Knowing that it would be uh, a sacrifice, an offering to, that would be called a sweet aroma, a fragrant aroma to God. Imagine many of them who were holy women thought about that and carefully followed that. Now, the strongest um, admonition in this section 4 through 11 is that there should be no leaven at all in the wafers or in the bread here. Now, God's word always associates leaven with sin. We know that, right? We'll look at a few passages to help us understand that in the New Testament. So God did not want worship of himself to be corrupted anyway by worship that was not pure, right? So what he did, they all knew what leaven did, and we know what leaven does today, and, and, and we know that the yeast is, is leaven, and, and certain yeast is, it makes really good bread. Gene and I were just out in San Francisco not very long ago. We always go to a certain place in San Francisco where we love their bread. They have a great, they, you can buy their starter there, you know, and all, all that. It's, it's great bread. But God did not want any of that in there because he knew what a little bit of yeast does. A little leaven what? Leavens the whole lump. And so it's a teaching, I want you to come to me with an offering that's free of sin. Now we know we can't do that ourselves, so there's a substitute for it. And all of this is that substitutionary teaching of Jesus Christ. He is going to fill this bread of life. But leaven becomes a strong teaching, right? And we know that soon in the nation of Israel, this would be a huge problem. They would begin to offer, they would begin to offer their lives very full of leaven, didn't they? Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, um, because leaven ends up often uh, in Jesus' sermons. And he's dealing with a group of people that he sees that are full of leaven while they're so supposedly making offerings to God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, we'll pick it up there. Pharisees have been coming to Jesus, they're testing him. Remember, they're wanting signs. Show us signs, signs. We're about signs, right? Signs and wisdom. They don't want to believe by faith. They don't want to put their faith in Jesus. They don't see themselves as a sinner, so they don't need someone to die for them. And so Jesus reminds them that an evil and adulterous generation seeks signs. And of course, he's, he knows, the disciples know that he's offending them, but he turns from them and he takes his disciples and he gets on a boat and he goes across the sea in verse 5. And then Jesus gets his disciples, right? He's He's alone with them before the crowds show up. And he says in verse 6, Jesus said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, watch out, for the, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. Man, did they miss the context there, right? He's just dealing with them. They're, they're so caught up in the physical, right? They don't want to believe in Jesus that he's the Messiah. They don't want to see him as a savior, one in need of, of being saved from their sins. And so they're constantly after signs and wonders and those things. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And now when he tells the disciples, look, you need to watch out for them. They're full of leaven. That was not a strange saying to them. Immediately they, would, they should have said, he's saying they're full of sin. They should have made that connection. But notice what they think. They think he's maybe mad at them of some way because they forgot to bring some bread. They're missing the whole point here. 
But here comes Jesus in his patient, kind, teaching way. But Jesus said, Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss, discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? You're missing the point. And then he says this to him. Look at verse 9. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets full that you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you uh, concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And the, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, excuse me, beware of the leaven of the bread, but it, now he's, he's teaching concerning the bread, but the beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they understood, now they finally get it, that he did not, was not saying beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now this was a huge problem, right? The leaven of the Pharisees was this hypocritical, this hypocrisy um, displayed in ritualism out of their sinful hearts, right? The last time Jesus deals with them, not shortly before this, uh, the disciples are walking through a, a grain field and they grab grain and they rub it in their hands and get the shaft off of it and they eat it and they go, oh, look, they break our traditions, our traditions. And Jesus reprimands them that they care more about the traditions of man than they do the word of God. And this is what he's talking about. They're so much into their ritual worship and it's done out of a sinful heart. And he's also talking about the Sadducees here. Well, one of the things that we see in the Sadducees that opens up to a bigger issue is they didn't believe in the resurrection. What that tells us is the Sadducees started to begin to be ones who reject the supernatural work of God. And so here he's pointing out that the leaven in the Sadducees was this rationalism that led for them to reject the supernatural of God. And so that led them eventually to reject any resurrection of the dead. Now, the Bible uses leaven all through it. Turn to me to 1 Corinthians. Keep going to your right. Paul takes this teaching um, of God uh, commanding the nation of Israel not to have leaven in their sacrifices, and he brings it into the, into the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's been awful sin in the church of Corinth. We're going to get to this section in time uh, as we're teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. But there's immorality in amongst them. There is a man living with his father's wife. Paul says, this doesn't even exist in the Gentile world. This is so bad. You've done nothing about it. The church is not practicing church discipline. It's not removing sinners from amongst them. And, and so what Paul does is he goes back to this same teaching on leaven as his example. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. He's going to equate boasting with leaven here. Notice what he goes on to say. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, are in fact unleavened. And I love that statement. He goes, listen, Christian. Your disobedience is making you look like an unbeliever. Your disobedience is making you look like one full of leaven, full of sin. You need to clean that out. You need to get rid of that leaven. 
And he's, of course, he's dealing with the sin that's in this church here. And then he makes this great statement, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. He goes, now you want to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is now you get to the Passover. Jesus Christ is the one who cleansed us. He is our feast. He is our Passover. Why would you allow sin to get in the lump? So today, church discipline is such a problem in, in America's church. We're so, oh, God's love, so much for God's love. We, we abuse the love of God, and then we don't deal with sin in the church. And, and this was a huge problem. So Paul says, look, you've let leaven get in there. And notice when you study chapter 5, and we'll get into this more, it isn't just a few people going, well, maybe it's okay. You know, should we really get after this guy? You know, <laughs> The whole church is allowing this to happen. The leadership, the membership... The entire church is allowing sinful things to go on and they're not disciplining this brother in the Lord here. And so he says, this is leaven. He says in verse 8, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Let us remember what Christ has done. Let us remember who he is and what he accomplished. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven, no, what is this, of malice and wickedness. That, that's how... God looks at sin. He sees it as malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, that's how he wants Christians to live. That's how God was saying in Leviticus 2, come, with, come to me with sincerity. Come to me with truth. Don't, don't come with me with a half-hearted, leaven full of, of some sort of worldly type of worship to me. You know, one of the things we would probably enjoy Sundays and Wednesday nights and our, even our own quiet time is if we would take time before we, we got into the Word of God, before we corporately worshipped or privately worshipped and said, Lord, what needs to be swept out of my life? I mean, if we just did that a little more often and said, Lord, sweep my life out. It's, there's things in it I know that aren't pleasing to you. I want to I bring an offering to you of thanksgiving. I don't want to taint it with sinful desires and the ugliness of sin. Oh, brother and sisters, we need to do that. So notice that Paul calls this love and just malice and wickedness. It's just the opposite of what God desires. Well, Jesus himself became the true unleavened bread to the believers, doesn't he? And he's the greatest fulfillment of this Old Testament offering, this offering of unleavened bread. Um, that's what Jesus calls himself. He's this pure unleavened bread offered to God. Go with me to John chapter 6. There's a great connection here between the manna that God gave, but then a manna that is free from leaven. The people thought that Moses gave them this unleavened bread, but Jesus reminds them that the Father gave it to them. And in John chapter 6, verse 32, you begin to see this great statement of who he is. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who is giving you the bread from out of heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Now, what would the Father give us? Would he give us a... And this is where so many people get so confused about the incarnation of Christ. Well, God came down and he dwelt in some man. And then this man lived this life. And, and then that man died, but Jesus didn't. And, and, and they confuse it with this terrible picture of a mixture of deity and sinful man. And so many people find a very... Get in a lost track there. Jesus Christ was the manna of heaven. There was absolutely no leaven in him. He was absolutely perfect. 
This is that term where we get the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And, and it's because Moses didn't give it. If Moses gave you bread, it would be full of leaven. He's a sinner. He needed Jesus Christ to come. So Jesus says, my father gave it to you. It's free. It's not tainted. He's perfect in everything. He comes to you. And of course, he's speaking of himself here. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Well, what is so great about heaven? There's no sin there. <laughs> he's the son of God. He's the impeccability of, of God. He's, he's the perfect one. And he come out of heaven and he comes to give us life. Look, if you don't have bread, if you don't have food, you will die. You go over 40 days, they know your body can't turn back from that. I mean, you have to have it. And here we're talking spiritually. You have this true bread with no leaven in it. Notice verse 34. And then he said to them, he said to, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They're still thinking physical, right? Everything was physical. Everything was material with them. They, they couldn't see that they needed a supernatural work. They needed Jesus Christ free from sin, free from unleavened bread. And here he says, look, you're, you're missing the point here. I am the bread of life. I'm the one who comes from heaven. The one who comes to me will never be hungry spiritually ever again. I'll satisfy every spiritual need you have, and I won't bring any leaven from me to you. I will be pure and perfect. I give you everything you need. And he who believes me will also never thirst. And so he is the satisfying one. So when we, as we turn back to Leviticus chapter 2, and you really look at this, this leaven this offering of unleavened bread here, this offering of grain, it, it is such a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, uh, the oil, the, I, I read quite a bit on the oil, trying to kind of get my mind around it. And a lot of guys, a lot of, especially older, long, dead reformers, um, really tie that to the work of the Holy Spirit. That the oil represents, and we see that kind of poured out on Jesus, anointed and, and so forth. That the oil represents this great work of the Lord Jesus that, uh, that attaches us, attaches that great work of Jesus together to our lives. And, and the oil symbolically probably is a good representation of the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 11 before we move on to the next point. This is interesting. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven, and then he throws this little one in there, or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. Well, I get the leaven, right? I, I, I understand that. Um, leaven was a picture of sin. Um, the offering was to be unblemished. And so no leaven was to be burned up before the Lord. But why honey? Why honey here? Well, first of all, in my study, I began to track this down and I, I went over to a lot of the research that went on in the Hittites and Prezersites and all the ites that, that the nation drove out. In almost every one of their offerings to their pagan gods, honey was involved. I didn't know that. <laughs> and uh, uh, honey was a very pleasurable thing. You know, we, you didn't run down in 7-Eleven to get yourself a, you know, a, a Milky Way candy bar. Honey was the sweetest thing on earth. It was such a sweet treat, and so it was something that people loved and was of great value. 
But as I studied this, that was always part of the sacrificial systems of the pagan tribes that are around them. And God wanted no part of any type of worship that resembled to pagan gods. The Hebrew word honey here also can be used of um, kind of the nectar or, or syrupy, fruit-like syrupy stuff that comes from raisins or dates or other pressed fruit. And so as we see, God had an offering planned from the fruit later. We'll see that here just in a few verses. But God, more importantly, he he didn't want honey in the sacrifice. And he didn't want his worship to resemble those of of the pagans. But it wasn't based on the appetite of man, right? So, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's nice to dip your bread in something, right? I mean, if you get a hot loaf of sourdough bread come out of the oven, man, you can just eat that right away. But we put butter on it. You know, um, uh, you put honey on bread and it really makes it sweet. And like, well, but that's what we like. So what God's saying, look, I don't, I, I don't want you to come the way you think you want to come. You come my way. <laughs> you come my way. I always have the right way to you to come. So it isn't always just all this pagan uh, way they worship paganly. God was trying to help them say, look, Honey sweet and pleasing to your palate. But I want you to come my way. I have a better way for you. See, I think what he does with this is it's easy to go around and say, I want worship done my way. That's why there's this huge church hopping. You know, it's like, you know, just hop from church to church till you find the package you like and what you can get the most from that church. It's just this consumer type of uh, church hopping that goes on. And what yet, what we should be looking at is, do, does that church worship pure, as pure as they can, offering up praise that honors the Lord, that's biblical, thoughtful, right before God, that the Word of God is preached, the Word is preached, not people's opinions on things, but the Word of God is preached. That's where you should go because you're coming God's way. So often we have so much honey mixed in with the way we think should be done. After 38 years of ministry, I've almost seen every reason why people leave churches. And and many times, well, it's just, you know, it's just just not working for me. I don't like the way you do things. Well, what do you not like? And so they say, well, I don't like this. I said, well, can I show you in the Bible why we do that? Because that's God's way. Well, I I just don't like it. I want to dip honey the way I want to come. And so what I think God is doing here is teaching them, look, I I don't want leaven in my my worship to me. Certainly get the sin out of it. I don't want that artificial sweetener that you're trying to put in, in a sense, to try to spur up the worship. I want you to come purely um, with sin set aside. Let, Let the lamb that you offered be the propitiation for sin and come to me my way. F.B. Meyer said this about this. I was reading his commentary. He said, Leaven was a symbol of rising pride in self, and honey merely attached those sins to it. It was the attachment. It was the personal desires, the way I want things done, attaches pride and self to my sacrifice. And look, we've all been there. Oh, God, I did this for you, and you let that happen to me? That's honey. <laughs> that's, that's unleavened. Honey in our worship. God, I, can't, I was at church five weeks in a row. And I didn't get my raise or I didn't get what I was asking for. Oh, no. Don't, don't come to God that way. We just got done teaching the kids the great theme at camp. Walk his way. That's, he has a way of bringing us to himself, teaching us how he wants to live so we can bring him the most 
glory. So God wants us to come to him without artificial works, sinful works, artificial desires come his way. The New Testament verse that really came to my mind was just Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And you guys know this, but let me read it to you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, now here's, here's how you come to God. By the what? By the mercies of God. See, that's how we come. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. I mean, it's Old Testament language, right? Acceptable to God, right? Coming God's way. Come by the mercies of God. See, no one gets saved when they come with their leaven and their honey. Nobody, that person doesn't get saved. I'm coming to you your way. This is the way you've told me to to come. I come empty-handed. I have nothing to offer you, God. All I have to offer is my sin. And then as Christians, and I think that's what this verse is about, more discipleship thing, he says, I urge you, brethren, some probably believers here is what the reference is, still live your life by the mercies of God. Husbands, love your wife by the mercies of God. Wives, submit to your husbands by the mercy of God. Children, obey your parents by the mercies of God. Employees, serve your employees by the mercies of God. Fellowship and love one another by the mercy of God. That, the mercy of God must be the thing that dictates how we live this life. Because mercy is a beautiful thing, and without it we're what? Dead in our sins. So here Paul comes and uses very similar languages that we are to, by the mercies of God, and they were to be remembered. Remember, I pulled you out of slavery. You were going to die in your sin, and I saved you out of that. I brought you out of Egypt. Same with us. He brought us out of our sins. So now we offer our bodies, our lives now as Christians, by the mercies of God to him. And, And notice it goes on to say that we offer it as a holy sacrifice, meaning free from leaven, free from sin, acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. Third, um, an offering pleasing to God. Verses 12 and 13. Just, just, I want to hit this quickly here. As an offering, the first fruits, uh, he says, verse 12, as an offering of the first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a smoothing aroma on the altar. So they're not to be burned up. Then he goes to 13. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking. Now, first of all, verse 12, um, and we'll see this just in a moment. He says, look, I want the best of your first harvest. Offer that to me, but don't offer it like the grain offering. I don't want it, I don't want it burned. I don't want it burned up to me. And he's going to do more of that. We'll understand that just in a few moments in verses 14 through 16. But then he drops down to this very interesting passage, verse 13. Notice he wants salt. Every grain offering of yours, verse 13, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Notice salt is, <laughs> is said three times in that verse. And, and look, we understand salt is for flavor. It's actually for purity. It kills bacteria and things. It's per, uh, to preserve things. And it was extremely costly in this time. And over and over, we see that God says, look, I want an offering that's soothing aroma to me, so come, come my way. And here, he uses the salt to be part of this. Now, God wants our offering to him to be flavorful. And I, it's so fun to kind of think about this. I don't know the way you sing, but I would encourage you to have a flavorful worship to God. You know, this, just, are, are you a, I mean, are you a, 
peanut butter with no jelly type of sandwich guy? You know, or are you a plain Jane on everything you eat? Or is there some flavor in this thing, right? So when we worship the Lord, is there flavor to it? I, I think we should be excited about that. And, and God says, flavor this thing up. <laughs> um, I mean, let, let salt be a part of this because it wants to be preserved. It wants to burn out all the impurities in this thing. And it wants to be preserved. It wants to bring flavor to this. And just like the flavor, uh, salt adds flavor to a meal and is pleasing to our palate, so our life should be flavorful to God. I mean, I, you know, you can't go too far here, but, you know, if I lick you, what do you taste like, <laughs> spiritually speaking? I mean, you know, think about that. Do we taste like God? I mean, he told us to already, be, uh, to, to already be imitators of him. Are his children recognizable? Is there a taste? The Bible says, taste and see that God is good. And then he tells us to be imitators of him. What do we taste like? Is there a flavor to us as we worship God? Ephesians 5, I love this passage, 9 through 10. Just take a time, just listen. For the, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's the fruit of the light in our life. That's what it consists of. It consists of God's goodness, his righteousness, and his truth. And then he says this, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I love that phrase. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Why does he have to say that? Because the church, somewhere along the line, people just quit trying to, to think, what pleases God? Well, right here, we can go figure it out, right? Instead, we go, well, you know, I'm really not into the verse-by-verse -verse Bible stuff. I'm more of a guy that just kind of likes to allegorize it and kind of see how it all turns out. That's not pleasing to God. He gave us his word. See, try to find out what pleases God. Open your Bibles in the mornings or evenings. Find what pleases God. He's worth that, isn't he? So here we have salt. Of course, Jesus brings in salt and light is very pleasing to the Lord. So here salt is this great thing that preserves meat. It, it, it makes it more flavorable. It's something that cured. It lasts a long time. Worship, worship um, with salt, which is the gospel, which is truth in it. It lasts a long time. And here, let me, let me just one add note to this. If your worship is pure and has the salt of the scriptures and the salt of the praise of God in it, it goes beyond Sunday morning. It preserves. And you find yourself singing those songs that you sang on Sunday morning. It's, you find yourself rethinking about the sermon and the passage that we went through. During the week, you think about it. Because that's what truth is. It's preserving in us. And you go, wow, often I, I, I'm, I'm singing songs that we sing on Sunday morning until I hear the ones on Wednesday. Then I start singing those throughout the week. And for me, I'm in the text all the time. That's what I'm doing. But my own Bible reading sticks. I want it to stick with me. Is the word of God sticking with you? Or do you walk out of here and your problems and your difficulties that you go through consume you before you get to from that door to your car? See, God's saying, look, put salt in this. Preserve this thankfulness. Preserve this, this thankfulness of God that I brought you out of slavery. And here we are. We're all ex-slaves here, aren't we? Slaves to sin, we're going to die in our sin if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that worth preserving? So it doesn't take long to start looking at these sacrifices and going, okay, Lord, ouch. Um, yes, this is what you want from us. Just a couple more thoughts about salt. Uh, salt is an amazing thing. From the ancient world all the way to our westward movement, salt was extremely valuable. You just didn't go down to 
you know, Walmart and get some morts and salt or something and, you know, throw it on your food. In, in fact, even in the Western movement, when you came to somebody's establishment and you stopped there, often what you gave them was a little bit of salt. It was one of the kindest gestures you could do at times in the ancient world and even up to the Western movement. Salt was huge. Where were you going to get salt unless you crossed through Utah? And salt flats. And some of you haven't been out there, but there's lots of it out there. I mean, it was very difficult to come by. In fact, it was said, and I wrote this quote down. Um, I got this from Spurgeon. He said this, to give a man salt was to make him your friend forever. So now we're not talking just solely about salt preserving our worship, but it now is relational. So God says, put some salt in this offering. It it's a, it's marks us as friends. There's a, there's, a, there's a preserving of our friendship here. And so I believe part of the treatment of salt and the sacrifice was to remind them of the relationship God had with them. I've come to you. You could not come to me. I came down to you. I am your friend. Put salt in the sacrifice. Let's preserve this. Oh, I think that's fun to kind of think about, don't you? Jesus taught that we are to be salt on the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And there should be a flavor of Christ when we interact with them. Paul takes this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, let your speech be seasoned with grace, as though seasoned with what? Salt. See, there's, there's grace that comes with that. What comes out of our mouth, brothers and sisters, what falls out in the times you're squeezed. I, I, man, there's times I've been squeezed, and I, ugh, ugh, Lord, that was not salty. That was not flavorful. Will you forgive me? Help me learn to speak, have speech that honors you because you rescued me from what I did not deserve. Well, verse 13 tells us that every sacrifice should be seasoned with salt, that it's a flavor of God's covenant. It's a remembrance of what he's done. Spurgeon said this, he says, My brethren, nothing in the service of God is trivial. Even a pinch of salt may seem to us exceedingly unimportant. But before God, before the Lord, it may it may not be so. And I just wrote in my notes, small things matter to God. See, it wasn't a lot of salt. And you know if you oversalt bread or dough or something, it would be terrible, right? It's just a little bit. It goes a long ways. That's what our lives look like. Fourth, and we'll quit with this, just real quickly. Look at um, verses 14 through 15, the first fruits of faith. Here he comes back to this fruit offering. Verse 12, he talked about these, give these first fruits to the Lord. Um, but they're not to be burned up like the other offerings, like the grain offerings and the, and the lamb in, in verse 1, uh, I mean chapter 1. But here he gives a different way of handling them. He says, you're also to bring grain offering of the early ripening things to the Lord. And you shall bring heads of grain roasted in fire, uh, grits of new growth, growth for grain offerings and for early ripening things. So he's getting into fruits and you're to lay them uh, you, you shall put them oil on them and lay incense on them. And it's a grain offering. And it's to be a memorial, verse 16, and it is to be pleasing to God. Well, here we begin to realize that the first fruits of faith, and I just want to end with this, was a real step of faith. When you give the first things to the Lord, you don't always know what's coming behind that. And so in a way, God was saying, I saved you out of slavery. Will you trust me to give me the first of what you have? You may not know what's coming behind it. I do, but you don't. 
And so this grain offering and this first offering, the second offering we see in, in Leviticus 2 is really an offering of faith. He says, I want your first stuff. Well, Lord, I don't know if the whole harvest is going to come in. All, all it takes is a freeze or, or the locust to come in or, or something to go. Yeah, you don't. But I want you first. Because I want you to have faith in me that I can provide. And so without all the, going into too much detail for the sake of time, because we have a little special treat for you here after I pray. Um, remember, lo- the Lord loves the first fruits of our life. There's so much abused. He, Jesus Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection meaning from that he's going to resurrect our bodies when he returns. Um, he's, he's the first fruit of, of all of his brethren. He's, because God raised him, he'll raise us. Because God loved him and showed our sins were forgiven through his work, we are now the first fruits of Christ. We're that offering, that great blessing of faith. And so, so much there to talk about. We'll hit this at another time. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. Leviticus 2, Lord, we often kind of stumble our way through this book. It's repetitive at some level. It's written to a nation um, that preceded us. And, and we often don't take time to maybe look in depth this way. Lord, we thank you that these grain offerings and this fruit offerings and this salt and no leaven and no honey, Lord, there's so much to learn there about how to worship you, how to walk your way instead of our own, Lord how to trust you by faith, to do what's right, even when it's difficult. Even when everybody else is saying, do something else, Lord, you tell us by your word to obey you, to walk with you. There's great pleasure. There's great freedom in obeying you, Lord. So I pray you would encourage us tonight, Lord, as we think about how we offer our lives to you as a sacrifice, Lord. By the mercies of God, we do it. Not on our own strength, but by your grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.